In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask that you bless us as we begin a new series, a new season of Lent. Help us to understand in the way that the Jewish people did not understand that you are Lord and God of all things and of all creation and that we as your subjects, your creation, are loved by you beyond any understanding of ours, beyond all imagination, and that you want the very best for us. But there are things that we must do and follow in order to obtain those blessings. So give us the strength and the grace during this season of Lent to set aside some of our preconceived thoughts and ideas and really try to examine our minds, our hearts, our conscience, our lifestyle to see if it conforms with your ideas and your plan for us as individuals. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Welcome again. And uh, I see most of you have dirty foreheads. And, you know, you'll all get a gold star on your <laughs> forehead. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about a couple things before we get into today's lesson that have to do both with the lesson and sort of tie into the idea of Lent. And it's, I'm going to bring up this dirty word again of idols. As you know from reading Isaiah all the way through, the subject of idols came up quite often. And if you stop and think about it, which I would like you to do, of course, is that all civilizations had idols in their culture. All of the ancient civilizations of Africa and Asia and Europe had idols. But if you think about it, in the Americas, both North and South and Central America, there were idols as well. The Indians had their idols, the Mayans, the Incas, um, and the Aztecs had their idols. Why? Anyone have ever stopped to think of why did all of these cultures, even those that were isolated from the rest of the world have idols to worship to give them some kind of hope or idea of the future. And it, <clears throat> Anyone have a, an idea or a suggestion? Yeah. That, um, maybe recognize something greater than self. Yes, yes. That's right. We want to recognize that there's something greater than ourselves. In other words, it's that sort of mother complex, you might say. We want to know who is our mother. There's an old Dr. Zeus uh, story about, are you my mother? Uh, which is very 
interesting. I forget the details because it's been quite a while since uh, <laughs> I read that to my children, of course. Uh, but nevertheless, all cultures long to know who is their creator. They need something to worship. They need something to reflect on that is greater than themselves. This is sort of a built-in thing that God built into us as part of his plan. He gave us life, and he wants us to remember that and eventually return to him in heaven. And if we don't, it's because it's our own fault. God does not condemn anyone. We condemn ourselves, either through neglect, through our disposition, our determination that we are better than God, or we don't have to be concerned about that. Uh, I really don't think that there are anyone, there is anyone, who is a total um, atheist. Agnostic, maybe. But atheists, uh, when it comes down to it, everybody has a knowledge that there is something greater than themselves. And God is drawing them through this idea to him. And so, even though the Jewish people picked up idols from the pagan nations around them, God still tried to get them to see that he alone was their God and that he would take care of them. And this is brought out over and over and over again in the prophet Isaiah. But why am I making a big deal out of this? Is because this is the time that we should start thinking again as we should every year during the time of Lent. Who is God for us? And are we worshiping him in the way that he would want us to? Let's take an example. Supposing there's a commercial that I just saw the other day where some people are sitting at a table. I don't remember whether it's in a restaurant or a meeting. I think it's in a in a business meeting of some kind. And this lady comes up, like a waitress or a messenger or somebody, comes up and hands this man a little card. And the card, of course, is shown to the viewing audience, and it says, your heart attack will uh, be delivered tomorrow. Okay? Uh, supposing that happened to any of us, and we faced the idea of eminent death. You know, not all heart attacks result in death, but many of them do. And you just never know in the beginning just how bad is it going to be. So, supposing you were faced with that, how would you react when you realize that you might, in the next few minutes or hours, be facing God? That is the kind of thing that we should really be looking at during the time of Lent. Not in a morbid way, because God loves us. 
it wants us to return to him eventually in the very best of ways. And, of course, if we do, and I should say when we do, not just if, but when we get to heaven, we will all see the glory that is to be ours. And why didn't we do this, thus, and so in a better way? We will have a lot of regrets, I'm sure, when we get to see the love that God has in store for us. And yet we, you know, in many ways, disregarded what he did for us, for us and disregarded the many things that he held out to help us along the way. So, when we are reading Isaiah, we will see more of this, not so much the idols, but the doubts that were in the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people in exiles in Babylon, and particularly those who were born there, or were perhaps little children and taken there, although they didn't take many little children. But nevertheless, some of these people had no attachments, physical or emotional or family attachments, <coughs> to Jerusalem and Judah. So, what we want to do here is to keep this kind of thing in mind uh, as we read, because these were real people. We read about them, and we have a tendency to say, you know, that sort of history and so forth and so on. But we've got to think about the fact that these were not just images in the past or stories, but these were real people, and they had doubts, and they had biases and misgivings, you know, like all of us do at times. But God was always there to carry them through. Okay. Another item on that I was going to bring up last week when we were talking about Lent was the fact that Today and Good Friday are days of fast and abstinence for everyone, no age limit excluded, okay? Uh, after that, uh, we more mature people get a little break. Uh, but today, no meat uh, whatsoever, uh, only one full meal and two other part. Um and the same on Good Friday. Now, I've had people ask me in the past, why no meat? What's wrong with meat? And I'd say, nothing. It's not the meat. Keep in mind, it's not the meat. Meat is a symbol. Remember the whole idea of the story of the uh, lamb at the time of Moses, had to be sacrificed. Lamb was only a symbol, you might say. And now the church has said, all right, today and on Good Friday, we are to give up all meat products, all right? 
And the idea is not so much to focus on the meat, but on why we have uh, designated meat as a main product to give up. And that's because that's one thing most people like. I had a lady say to me, well, all I have to do is think about the word fasting and I'm hungry. Uh, and that's a normal thing. That's not unusual. But meat is only a symbol. So if anybody should ask you, particularly non-Catholics, or your children, or grandchildren, whatever, it is not the meat. Meat is only a symbol to remind us of what happened on Good Friday. Okay? The Lamb of God was slain on Good Friday for us, for our benefit. And that is the whole purpose of it. Okay. Enough on that. Uh, any questions? Yes. Very much so. In fact, it's mentioned in the Bible uh, in the New Testament. Um, William's question is, in the Old Testament, did they do fasting? And yes, very much so. Uh, it's mentioned several times uh, throughout the Bible. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. Let's begin at chapter 49. I want to go through this and read because I'm sure that many of you are confused or got confused as to who was speaking to whom. Am I right? Okay. All right. In the first part of 49, it is Isaiah speaking to the people. Okay. Hear me, coastlands. Listen, distance people, distant people. Before birth, the Lord called me, me being Isaiah. From my mother's womb, he gave me my name. He made my mouth like a sharp-edged sword, concealed me, shielded by his hand. He made me a sharpened arrow. In his quiver he hid me. He said to me, you are my servant. In you, Israel, and he's representing Israel or a member of the people of Israel. I show my glory. Though I thought, and this again is Isaiah speaking about himself. Though I thought I had toiled in vain for nothing and for naught spent my strength. And the reason, of course, he's saying that is because even though he has preached for some time, to the Jewish people, they still lingered in doubt and ignored it. Yet my right is with the Lord, my recompense is with my God. For now the Lord has spoken, who formed me as his servant from the womb, that Jacob may be brought back to him. Jacob, again, is a symbol of the people of Jerusalem, not the person. The person died many, many hundreds of years before this. The person Jacob, that is, is now uh, used here as a symbol. Okay. That Jacob may be brought back to him and Israel gathered to him, meaning God. I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. 
The next line here is a difficult one to understand unless you do a little thing here. It says, it is too little, he says, for you to be my servant. And if you take and reverse the the first two words, is it too little? Okay. Then it makes a little more sense and it is a little easier to understand. Is it too little, he says to me, and I'm adding that, uh, for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. Now in this paragraph here, when he says, um, Jacob, and then he says Jacob again, and then he says Israel, he's always meaning the same group of people, okay, the Jewish exiles. Is it too little, he says, for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel? I will make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, I'd like to just digress for a moment here. You will see this phrase, a light to the nations, in using many different verbs here. And it often will say, a light for the nations. And that is wrong, because a light for the nations would mean it would be a light shining on the Jewish people. But when it's talking about a light to the nations, it's talking about the Jewish people being a light to those nations, those pagan nations surrounding them. Does that make sense? Okay. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to the one despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. Now he's talking about the Jewish nation. When kings see you, they shall stand up, and princes shall bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. You, in this case, is referring to the Jewish people. Going on. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I answered you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Now, salvation in this case is the same as the word liberation. It is not meaning salvation in a spiritual sense as we think of it. On the day of salvation, I help you. I form you and set you as a covenant of the people to restore the land, to allot the devastated heritages, to say to the prisoners, come out, to those in darkness, show yourselves. Again, he is talking about the Jewish people in exile. Along the roadways they shall find pastures, On every barren height shall their pastures be. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor shall scorching wind or sun strike them. 
For he who pities them, leads them, guides them besides springs of water. Okay. If you read down in the middle part of the uh, commentary on page 133, says the restoration never achieved the goals that the prophet had for it. This led to further reflection on and an reinterpretation of the prophet's message. One outcome of this reinterpretation was the appropriation of the book of Isaiah by the writers of the New Testament. They believed that the prophet's words finally found their fulfillment in Jesus and the gospel. So what we're doing here is we've got to look at, as I've said many times in the past, and we'll always continue to say, the Old Testament particularly, in some parts of the New, but mostly the Old Testament is written on two levels. It is written on a earthly level and refers to the people of its time not to something in the future. But the spiritual level on which it is based generally refers to the future. Okay. And we will see that because some of these words in chapters 49, 50, and 51, and part of 52, are, and, and especially when we get to 53, you will hear these throughout Lent. And chapter 53, of course, uh, from 42, verse 12, to 43, verse 13, that will be the first reading on the good, in the Good Friday literature. Okay. 52, 12, to 53, 12, 13. Will be the first reading uh, in the Good Friday liturgy. Okay. So the spiritual level on which the Old Testament is written generally reply, uh, refers to the future, okay. because the Jewish people never fully fulfilled their role in God's plan of salvation. They never became a light to the pagan nations. And they were supposed to do that by developing a just economical, uh, just economic and social community, which they never did. They became an exclusive uh, nation and excluded everyone else. Okay. Even at Jesus' time, Remember, it was a big no-no for uh, a Jew to go into a Roman's house and to dine with them was just, you know, unheard of, unbelievable. And yet Jesus did it many times because that was the purpose that God created the Jewish nation in the first place was to take his word outward and not keep it to themselves. And we today find ourselves quite often doing the same thing. You often hear about, oh, two things that you don't talk about in public society is death and religion. 
and yet, and it's not that you have to go and uh, get on a soapbox the moment you get into a group of people. I had a neighbor who every other word was praise God or if it's God's will or, you know, to the point where you'd get tired of it because it was overwhelming. And there's times when I used to have to say, oh, Janice, shut up. Uh, uh, because it was too much. It was, it's just, you know, you just went overboard. It's more through your actions and sometimes what not to do. Uh, for example, when you have uh, jokes within a, a group that come up that are uh, either vulgar or discriminating against certain uh, people or groups of people, etc. And you can speak up. You know, that's not proper and I don't go for that. Or make some brief comment. Not putting everybody down or putting everybody at a, you know, a uncomfortable position, but uh, letting them know that that is wrong. That's the kind of thing that we have to do. Uh, when you go out uh, for dinner in a restaurant, there's nothing wrong with blessing yourself and giving thanks before the meal. If you do it at home, why don't you do it out in a restaurant? Okay. Uh, that's the kind of thing that we should be doing, and many of us unfortunately don't. Okay. You know, sometimes you don't have to say anything, you just don't laugh. <laughs> That's true. And it, it really works. I tried it. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and quite often, somebody will say, well, what's the matter? Didn't you think that was funny? And you say, no. Yeah. Don't hide your faith. You don't have to wear it on a sleeve or, you know, a big sign on your back, I am a Catholic. But let people know in subtle voice. All right. Uh, well, yes, that comes out of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, but, and again, that's talking about fasting and, and certain, and you're right. Yeah. William brings up the, the, uh, quotation from the Bible, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That doesn't always apply to what we're talking about, but, um, sometimes it, it will. Let's go on. Top of 134. I will turn my mountains into roadway and make my highways level. See, these shall come from afar, from the north and the south. Others from the land of Syene. Syene is a major city in Egypt now called Aswan, where the Aswan Dam is, the largest dam in the world. Okay. These people that are coming from the east and the west, the north and so forth, are those who scattered at the time of the original Babylonian uh, conquering by uh, the Babylonian conquering of the Jewish people way back in the early part of the 6th century. Okay, 6th century B.C. that is. 
people scattered to other parts of the world, primarily North Africa and to uh, Greece. And they continued to do that. Um, also, they scattered to Egypt. And uh, But these are those people that are now being called back at the time of the return here. It says, sing out, heavens, and rejoice, earth. Break forth into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and shows mercy to his afflicted. What he's doing is forgiving those people, uh, the exiles, and calling the remnants back to Jerusalem. But then they are still doubting uh, the people's response now to all of the above. says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. It's interesting when you read other parts of the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms. The Psalms were, you know, there's 150 Psalms, regardless of uh, what version of the Bible you have, whether it's Protestant, Catholic, or whatever, there's 150 Psalms, okay? Do you know that only seven of them are considered penitential? In other words, those that recognize that mankind is sinful and regrets the sins that he has committed. Almost all of the other psalms are praises, which is good, but most of them are what I call gimme prayers. Lord, give me this, give me that, give me something else, because you owe it to me. I did this for you. It fails to recognize the lowliness of the human being in the face of God. And that is so important that we do that, to recognize our lowliness. And here they're doing the same thing. After all of these chapters, after all of the pleading that God has done through the prophets, not only uh, Isaiah, but Ezekiel and Jeremiah at this particular time, the people are still doubting. It says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord's response is, or the prophet's response, I should say, is, can a mother forget her infant or be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Of course, they're talking about the nation of Israel. For should she forget, I will never forget you. See upon the palms of my hands, I have engraved you. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten. Your levelers, your destroyers go forth from you. Look about and see. They are all gathering and coming to you. As I live, oracle of the Lord, you shall don them as jewels. Beject yourself like a bride. And though you were waste and desolate, a land of ruins, now you shall be narrow for your inhabitants, while those who swallowed you up will be far away. 
The children of whom you were bereft shall say in your hearing, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to live in. And you shall ask yourself, Who has borne me these when I was bereft and barren, exiled and repudiated? Who has reared them? I was left all alone. When, when then do these come, where then do these come from? Thus says the Lord God, see, I will lift up my hand to the nations and to the peoples raise my signal. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your guardians and their princes your handmaids. He's going a little bit overboard in many ways here, trying to convince the people that everything will be safe and that what he will do is to make sure that they get back to Jerusalem uh, with no problems. I want to go over to chapter 50 because the rest of uh, 49 is really the same point here. You know, if you just look at the top of page 136, it says, those who oppose you, I will oppose, and your sons I will save. It's all the idea of God will protect his people. Uh, and why? Again, we got to keep in mind He will protect them because he loves them, but also he needs them. He needs this remnant to revitalize Judah and Judaism. Beginning in chapter uh, 50, rather. um, Now, this is God speaking, all right, through the prophet. Thus says the Lord, where is the bill of divorce with which I dismissed you, or dismissed your mother? Or to which of my creditors have I sold you? It was for your sins you were sold. For your rebellions your mother was dismissed. Why was no one there when I came? Why did no one answer when I called? Is my hand too short? to ransom? (laughs) Have I not the strength to deliver? See, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into wilderness. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens in black and make sackcloth their covering. For the Lord has given me a well-trained tongue. Here's another one that you will uh, hear in Holy Week, this passage from here on. The Lord has given me, and of course the me in this case, in the Old Testament, is referring to Isaiah again. The Lord has given me a well-trained tongue that I might know how to answer the weary, a word that will waken them. Morning after morning, he wakens my ear to hear uh, as disciples do. The Lord God opened my ear. I did not refuse. I did not turn away. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. 
My face I did not hide from insults and spitting. The Lord is my help, and therefore I am not disgraced, and therefore I set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. He declares my innocence is near, and who will oppose me? Let us appear together. Who will dispute my right? Let them comfort me. Now, if you think about it, this is Isaiah speaking, but also in a spiritual sense, it applies to Jesus Christ as well. Unfortunately, so many people, because that is a passage that is repeated uh, two or three times uh, in Holy Week, people are familiar with that and automatically kind of apply that to Jesus Christ and totally forget what did it really mean back here in the 6th century. And it is Isaiah saying that in spite of the doubts that the Jewish people to whom he is preaching, in spite of their doubts, he is convinced that the Lord is there and will protect all of them, including himself. Unfortunately, we know that almost all of the prophets were murdered by their own people. Now, Isaiah is again speaking to the Jewish exiles. See, the Lord God is my help. Who will declare me guilty? See, they will all wear out like a, a garment consumed by moths. Who among you fears the Lord, heeds his servant's voice? Whoever walks in darkness without any light, yet trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon their God. All who kindle flames and set flares alight, walk by the light of your own fire and by the flares you have burnt. This is your fate. From my hand you shall lie down in a place of torment. This is because they are continuing to doubt. Again, an exhortation here to trust. Trust in the Lord. Listen to me, you who pursue justice. And he's talking to the faithful. Remember, not all of the Jewish exiles were so doubtful and disobedient and ungrateful. There was a small remnant, particularly those who returned. Not all of them returned, you know. Listen to me, you who pursue justice, the faithful few, that is, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were taken. Now, of course, those are metaphors for God himself, right? They came from God, and they still remain part of God's creation. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. Though he was but one when I called him, I blessed him and made him many. He's talking about, again, the Jewish people. He's using himself as sort of a metaphor, you might say. Yes, the Lord shall comfort Zion. 
and shall comfort uh, her ruins. Her wilderness he shall make like Eden, her wasteland like the garden of the Lord. Joy and the garden of the Lord is what? Eden. Okay. He's, and there is some belief, not totally convinced or proven, there is some belief that all of the desert area between Babylon and Judah during this time of returning became, through a miracle, like a garden. So that these people, when they walked, they had water, they had vegetation, they had pasture lands and so forth to help uh, transport the people because, you know, it was quite a trek of walking. No uh, speed rails in those days. Okay. <clears throat> I lost my place. Okay. The Garden of Eden... William just asked a question that is, yes, uh, asked a question if the Garden of Eden was in Babylon. And yes, many people believe that it was. We have no way of knowing. But many people believe that the Garden of Eden was between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, which is the current country of Iraq. Well, no, Calvert, the people that were, that fled there during the original, uh, conquest by Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. And, you know, the people from the north and the south and so forth and the west, he's talking about all of those people that fled Jerusalem. He wants them to come back now. I'm sorry, where did we leave off? Uh, verse, oh yes, okay, alright. The Lord God has given me a well no, I thought I read that. I'm sorry? Fifty-one, three, oh okay, alright, alright. No, I think we're back on track. I'm sorry. Yes, the Lord shall comfort Zion, shall comfort all her ruins. Remember that the exiles, they were overjoyed at going back, but when they got there, what did they find? Nothing but ruins and resentment from the people who never left. So it was not an easy task. It was not a joyful uh, reunion, you might say. Her wilderness he shall make like Eden. Her wasteland like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of song. Well, we're not so sure that that all happened. Be attentive to me, my people, my nation. Give ear to me, for teaching shall go forth from me, and my judgment as light to the peoples. 
and I will make my victory come swiftly. My salvation shall go forth, and my arm shall judge the nations. To me the coastlands shall hope, and my arm they shall await. Arise, raise your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth below. Though the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth wear out like a garment, and its habitants die like flies, my salvation shall remain forever, and my victory shall always be firm. That's true when you look at it from both the earthly point of view, meaning the salvation of these people, Jerusalem and Israel and Judah still exist, but heaven will exist far longer. Hear me, you who know justice, you people who have my teaching at heart, that is, the faithful ones. Do not fear the reproach of others. Remain firm at their revilings. They shall be like a garment eaten by moths, like wool consumed by grubs. But my victory shall remain forever, my salvation for all generations. Going on. Awake, awake, put on strength, armor of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old, in ages long ago. Was it not you who crushed Rahab, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Or you who made the depths of the sea a sea and a way from the redeemed to pass through. Now he's talking again about the original exodus out of Egypt at the time of Moses. Okay. And he's using it just as a comparison. Okay. Those whom the Lord has ransomed will return and enter Zion singing. Singing. That reminds me. To go to Psalm 126. says, when the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men dreaming. And then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with rejoicing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad indeed. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the torrents in the southern desert. Those who sow in tears shall reap rejoicing. Although they go forth weeping, that is, when they went out to Babylon, they went weeping, carrying their seed to be sown. They shall come back rejoicing, carrying their sheaves. Now, if you go over to 137, this is a reflection later on the times in Babylon. Says, by the streams of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. 
On the aspens of that land we hung up our harps, though there our captors asked us for the lyrics of our songs, and our despoilers urged us to be joyous. Sing to us the songs of Zion, they said. But how could we sing a song of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand be forgotten, and may my tongue cleave to my palate. If I remember you not, if I place not Jerusalem ahead of my joy, remember, O Lord, against the children of Edom, Edom, not not Eden, the garden, but Edom, the nation. Uh, The day of Jerusalem when they said, raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you destroyer, happy the man who shall repay you. The evil you have done us. Happy the man who shall seize and smash your little ones against the rock. And who was that man? Cyrus. Cyrus the Great. Cyrus is the one that conquered Babylon. Let's go back up to verse 11. Those whom the Lord has ransomed will return and enter Zion singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Well, didn't last very long. They will meet uh, with joy and gladness. Sorrow and mourning will flee. Not quite. I, it is I who comfort you. Can you then fear mortals who die, human beings who are just grass, and forget the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? All the day you are in constant dread of the fury of the oppressor when he prepares himself to destroy. But where is the oppressor's fury? The captives shall soon be released. Hey, it's about time. They shall not die and go down into the pit, nor shall they want for bread. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that it waves roar. The Lord of hosts by name. I have put my words into your mouth. I covered you, shield by my hand, stretching out the heavens laying the foundations of the earth, saying to Zion, you are my people. Awake, wake up, arise, Jerusalem, you who drank from the Lord's hand, the cup of his wrath, who drained to the dregs the bowl of staggering. She has no one to guide her, Of all the children she bore, she has no one to take her by the hand. Of all the children she reared, your misfortunes are double. Who is there to grieve with you? Desolate and destruction, famine and sword. Who is there to comfort you? Your children lie helpless in every street corner, like antelopes in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. But now hear this afflicted one, drunk but not with wine, 
Thus says the Lord, your master, your God who defends his people. See, I am taking from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall no longer drink. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors. And those who said to you, bow down, that we may walk over you. So you offered your back like the ground, like the street for them to walk on. Woo! Okay. Any questions? Are you getting something out of this? Okay. Is it something that you can really spend a little time in your mind and heart during Lent to ponder over how does it affect you as an individual? That's what it's all about. If you just sit here and listen to me or read this as history and forget all about it, then you've missed the point. The whole idea of studying scripture is not just to learn the history and the background of our faith, but to see how does it apply to us today. And not all of it will, of course, but most of it can in some way apply it because scripture, the Bible, is a living organism. It's, you know, so many people will say, this is the word of God. Well, that sounds good. But this is only a book. It becomes a word of God when you take what is in this book and live it. Then it's the word of God. Okay? But this is just words on a page if you don't live it, if you don't do anything about it. And so that's why it's important that you understand Scripture, both at the time it was written and for the people of whom it was written, but when you take it and apply it to yourself. Liberation. That's right. You can, as my mother used to say, and it used to make me so annoyed. <laughs> you can't just lay down and die. Life goes on. Get up and go on with it. You know? And we used to say, that's not what I wanted to hear. But that's reality. You're right. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. So when they came back, they had virtually nothing and had to start all over again. Fortunately enough, it wasn't uh, Cyrus, but his son, uh, I can't pronounce the name, uh, who gave them uh, materials and Nehemiah to help them restore the temple uh, and the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, but that's a totally another story and another book. Okay. Yeah. The book of Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah. And and I recommend that you read that in time to see how things continued on afterwards. Uh, Nehemiah and the book of Ezra. Uh, they were not contemporaries, but their time, their influence slightly overlapped. Ezra was a priest, 
Ezra is the one who is given credit for uh, putting the Old Testament pretty much in the order that we have it today. And revising and sort of re-editing a lot of the early books of the Old Testament. You said earlier that when they returned, the priests now were the ones who held the people together. Yes, yes. Uh, that's a good point. Because the monarchy had totally collapsed and disappeared, and there was no more kings, okay, because they were now a conquered nation, uh, it was the priestly class that came to power while they were still in Babylon. It was the priestly class who started the synagogue programs, all right, and the little house of, of studies. Uh, and when they start to come back to Babylon, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, it was the priestly class who were the leaders. And that is how the high priest uh, became actually the most important leader in Judaism and in Judah uh, up until the time of Christ and beyond. Okay. Remember, uh, once the Romans came in, they reestablished um, the kings a little bit, more or less to appease the people. You know, that's the Herods. Remember, there were four, seven different Herods. Uh, father, four sons, two grandsons, and one great-grandson. But they were never really kings in the true sense. Uh, They refer to Herod as King Herod. He never was truly a king because they were always under the domination of another country. Uh, Persia, after the Babylonian exile for a short while, then Greece, and then Rome. And that was true all the way down through history until the uh, United Nations in 1947, 1948. Let's go on to the first part of chapter 53. Or 52, I'm sorry. Awake, awake, put on your strength, Zion. Put on your glorious garments, Jerusalem, holy city. Never again shall you, shall the uncircumcised or the unclean enter you. Well, that sure didn't happen. Uh, arise, shake off the dust. Set enthroned, Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, captive daughter Zion. For thus says the Lord, for nothing you were sold. Without money, you shall be redeemed. Now, that is kind of a little bit difficult to understand. First of all, they weren't sold. They were conquered. But that is in reference to the nothingness. Okay? Um, Without money, you shall be redeemed. And that is because of the hand of the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, To Egypt long ago my people went down to sojourn there. Assyria too oppressed them for naught. 
But now, what I am to do here, meaning in Babylon, oracle of the Lord, my people have been taken away for nothing. Their rulers uh, mock, oracle of the Lord. Constantly, every day, my name is reviled. And therefore, my people shall know my name on that day, for it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, announcing peace, bearing good news, announcing salvation, saying to Zion, Where is your God? Listen, you sentinels, raise a cry. Together they shall shout for joy, for their see, for they see directly before their eyes the Lord's return to Zion. Break out together in song, O ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his arm, his holy arm, in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Out from there, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But not in hurried flight will you go out, nor leave in headlong haste. And that's, in, of course, in reference to how the, uh, the Jewish people left Egypt in haste, the whole idea of the Passover, the original Passover. For the Lord goes before you, and your rear guard is the God of Israel. Now this, even though it's very flowery language, is actually the actual release of the Israelites, or the, the Jewish people, from Babylon. Okay. This whole 12 verses here is the actual release of the Jewish people from Babylon. It's a metaphor, you might say. Um, William's comment here is uh, on the use of the word the uncircumcised. Um, in verse 1 here and the unclean he's talking about the uh, conquerors the Babylonians who conquered them they were uncircumcised people um, but the use of the term uncircumcised is to say the same as uh, the Gentiles or the uh, other nations yeah it is sort of a derogatory uh, metaphor. Yeah. Yes. 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 They're in reference to the pagan nations. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting because many of those pagan nations did circumcision also. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Goodness gracious.
to say Jewish um, synagogues or temples? Synagogues. There are no more temples. The temple, the temple, was destroyed. Excuse me. The temple was destroyed first by the Babylonians in the year 587 B.C. But it was rebuilt first by Nehemiah and then again uh, by Herod the Great uh, in 43 B.C. It was destroyed again in 70 A.D., never to be rebuilt. And it was not God who said that there should only be one temple that was King David. King David's rule back in the 11th century, 10th century, 11th century BC, uh, that made Israel the center of Judaism and the temple there to be the one and only. Okay. Once that was destroyed, uh, animal sacrifice within the Jewish nation disappeared. Never, never to be rebuilt. Yes, sir. Curious question. The author's commentary often spans the middle of one chapter to the middle of another chapter. Who said chapter 52 starts here, chapter 53? The author, the commentator seems to say that the chapters don't mean a lot of sense. You're right. And we've all been... (laughs) Uh, struggling with that for hundreds of years. The chapters and the verse were obviously not in there when the authors wrote them. They were put, the chapters were put in there in the 12th century. And the verses then were put in there, uh, in the 15th century. Okay? Uh, by, well, I can give, bring, I don't have it here, but I can give you a little history of that. I can bring that in next week if you want. Prior to this, when scripture was written, it was written without any breaks whatsoever. Okay? So that it was rather difficult to determine when different events were happening because it looked like just one story, one continuous story. But whoever put the chapters in, um, it was how he read the story and how he in his own mind um, considered this is where the break should be. And you're right. In some cases, uh, it's right in the middle of a long story. Or the verses are even worse. Sometimes you'll have a verse break right in the middle of a sentence. That's very difficult to understand, except that when it was in the original language, which in most cases was Greek, uh, the construction and the wording was a lot different than it is in English. So you have all of those little factors. Uh, really, to give you an answer, is that neither I nor anyone else can give you any better example or explanation. Because there just isn't any. The books were separate. The books were separated, yes. 
and the letters of Paul and so forth were separated, but they were not divided into chapters and verse. No, that was done. The chapters were done in the 15th century, the verse, uh, 12th century, and the verses were done in the 15th century. Uh, Susan? Well, yes, Susan's, uh, Susan's question is here in uh, 52 verse 5, and it's used two or three times. It says, but now what I am to do here, O oracle of the Lord. If you change that word oracle to voice, voice of the Lord. In other words, this is Isaiah talking, but he's talking in the voice of of the Lord. Okay. And it's um, like Jesus would often say, oh you of little faith. Uh, it's the same kind of comment. He's referring to himself as the voice of the Lord. So if you just change that word oracle to voice, I think it will be a little easier to understand. Yes. How do they determine where it's going to be followed by a Greek uh, or a Hebrew in regards to writing the whole, all of these scriptures? So written in Hebrew. The Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, yes. Alright. Then, in the second century BC, those people who would fled after the at the beginning of the Babylonian exile or conquering, who fled to other parts of the world, primarily North Africa and Greece, as I said earlier. In the second century, they by that time, they had forgotten how to speak Hebrew because their language had changed to primarily Greek, which was the elite language of the educated people. I'm talking about the general people in all of these foreign lang uh, foreign countries who were still Jews, but they didn't speak Hebrew, Hebrew anymore. So they wanted their scriptures translated into Greek. So they had a number of people get together, take all of the Hebrew scriptures that were originally written in Hebrew, and translate them into Greek for these foreign people. Because, you know, the Judaism started to spread out throughout the world. And many of those people never spoke Hebrew as a spoken language. Uh, Hebrew today is not really a spoken language. Um, so they wanted their the scriptures, the same scriptures, but translated into Greek. All right, and so you had both Hebrew scriptures for the people who lived very close to and around uh, Jerusalem and in Israel, uh, but those people who lived out 
in the other countries who were still Jews, they used the Greek translation. When the New Testament came around, because by that time Greek was still the language of the elite and of the educated people, even though at the time of Christ and later they were under Romans, they still did not speak Roman or Latin. That was a vulgar language. So they used Greek. So they're saying the Jews adopted Greek language as well? The Jews who did not live in Jerusalem, yes. Well, they are. Okay. Yeah, they yeah. are. Does that make sense now where the Greek comes in? And the word you've often heard about the first translation by St. Jerome of the Greek version of the Bible, which was all of the Bible now. The first translation of it from Greek into Latin was in the 4th century A.D. by St. Jerome. The word Vulgate comes from the word Vulgar because originally when Latin developed as a local uh, language, almost like a dialect, it was considered Vulgar by the people. And the language, because most of those people were uneducated, over a period of time, Latin moved out into wider and wider circles and became the general language of the people, even to the point where it became actually the dominant language. But the confusion at this point is, if you were practicing this question in about and in, 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 like putting some scriptures and other scriptures together to get points in authority in what they wanted to have the people perceive. Now, in essence, a lot of the you know a lot of the denominations are also using the same adaptive way to get the point across by putting one scripture to another scripture to get the essence of what how they wanted to have people perceive it. Is this a a certain form of way to have a metaphorical understanding of exactly how they wanted to proceed in God's way? Well, what you're really saying is languages can be put together to say anything you want it to say. Well, no, but it's based on scripture. Well, remember, remember that it is the intent that becomes the sin when it's against the wishes of God. All right. So if you take scriptures and you are manipulating it to make your own point that is not in line with God, then it is wrong. Sure, words can be used in any way that you wish, but that doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. All right. So that is why the... New Testament that we have was all based on the writings of 
people who were still alive at the time they were written so that they could be verified. And it, the New Testament was cut off, or the timing of adding things to it was cut off at the end of the first century. And that's where we get our word apostolic, because all of the writings of the New Testament came from the apostles or their immediate associates. Paul was considered an apostle, so there was actually 13 apostles rather than most people's idea of 12. Because the apostle, the word apostle means one who is sent, and the original designation was one who was sent by God himself. And the only one outside of the original 12 who fit that designation was St. Paul because he was sent by God himself. Timothy and Titus and uh, some of the others who were very close helpers of the apostles quite often are referred to as apostles. Technically, they are not. Any other questions? See, you get into all kinds of stories and <laughs> trivia, you know. Okay. Uh, no other questions? Goodness, we have a short day today. All right. Hmm? Uh, okay. Yeah, we started a little late, so I've got at least 10 minutes to keep you here. <laughs> Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together, as we thank you for all things, good, bad, and indifferent, because in some ways you are in control of all life and all things. Help us then to see that. Help us to not get all upset or worried when things don't go our way, but turn to you in prayer and ask for patience and guidance. So during this season of Lent, help us really to sincerely search our minds and our hearts to see how we are walking with you, or if we are walking with you. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing and our efforts to be mindful of the regulations of Lent so that we can actually enjoy a greater Easter. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.